Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. To some, it's justice long delayed. To others, it could end up as cultural vandalism. Restitution is the word of the moment. These looted goods are being repatriated to close the colonial chapter. Plinths now standing symbolically empty. Museums are being forced to change with the times. Last week, a UK museum handed back objects looted by British soldiers in the 1890s. London's Horniman Museum is returning these six pieces and signing over the ownership of the 66 other so-called Benin bronzes. The Horniman Museum, last year's Museum of the Year, was the latest institution to relinquish objects obtained in contentious and sometimes violent circumstances. The University of Aberdeen became the first British institution to announce they would be returning the stolen head of another. Cambridge University will follow suit. France gave back 26 pieces. Germany has recently signed an agreement to return more than 1,000 pieces. And the Smithsonian in the U.S. returned 29 Benin bronzes. The bronzes were clearly the plunder of war. But once again last week, as it has recurrently over the years, items gained under much less clear circumstances were the subject of demands for their return from Britain's most internationally renowned museum. The Greek Prime Minister said there was some progress being made on a deal with Britain to reunite the Elgin marbles or the Parthenon sculptures in Greece, which could mean returning the marbles which are currently owned by the British Museum. Now, the chair of the British Museum has reportedly been holding secret talks over the possible return of the Elgin marbles. You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm David Aronovich. Today, the British Museum or Greece, who should lose their marbles? If you walk up the steps and through the classical portal of the British Museum, through the soaring modern Great Hall, a left turn will take you through the sculpture gallery where a vast head of Amenhotep III will gaze sightlessly high above you and then into an echoing Art Deco-era room lined with white, battered Greek marble friezes lining the walls and freestanding sculptures at each end. 
Nearly 2,500 years ago, these objects were made to adorn the Parthenon, the famed temple built on the top of the Acropolis, the most sacred part of ancient Athens, from where today you can look down over the city and out to the port of Piraeus and the sea. To a modern eye, the display, created in its current form in the late 1930s, might seem fairly conventional, perhaps even old-fashioned. But these are some of the great surviving artefacts of the ancient world. And ever since they landed on British shores over 200 years ago, long before modern debates about colonialism, these pieces have been at the centre of a great cultural argument. So how did the marbles end up being housed here, far away from where they were made? We've come to the British Museum to meet one of Britain's greatest scholars of the Greek and Roman world, who literally wrote the book on the Parthenon. She also happens to be a trustee of the museum. I'm Mary Beard and I'm a classicist. Mary, take us back to ancient Greece. Please. <laughs> what was the importance of the, the Parthenon to Athenians and, and to the Greek world more generally? And what was it actually used for? <laughs> Let's start with what it was used for, because that's a bit easier than the importance. I mean, it's a temple of the goddess Athena the Virgin, which is what Parthenos and then Parthenon means. Temples weren't like churches or synagogues, right? Temples in the ancient world were where gods and goddesses lived. There might have been some sacrifices outside it, but it isn't a place of congregational worship. It's a storehouse and a home. It's a home for the goddess Athena, in part, but it's also a fantastic storehouse of treasure. Offerings made to the goddess Athena, in part, but also kind of Athenian imperial loot. So you have to get out of your head the idea that it was somehow like Westminster Abbey. It was a peculiar combination of place where the goddess lived and place where loot of all sorts, offerings of all sorts, enormous riches were stored. Now, I think we should just remind ourselves of the rough timing. Between what years, roughly, can we say that it was built and completed, if it was completed? It's being built in the 440s and 430s BCE. And it's built to replace earlier versions of temples of Athena that had been destroyed in the Persian invasion in 479 BCE. Now, when you say, what's its importance to Greece? Well, at the moment it's built, Greece isn't a, a nation in any sense. So they come together every now and then for the Olympic Games, otherwise a whole set of rival cities. The 440s and 430s, we're at the, the, the period when Athens is its most democratic and most blatantly imperialist. So I mean, we kind of tend to like to think, I think, that nice democratic Athens didn't have an empire, but I'm afraid, like other democracies, nice democratic Athens had a pretty brutal empire. And what the Parthenon does, apart from being a temple put up to house the goddess, and in a sense to honour the goddess, it's put up to celebrate Athenian power, Athenian self-image, identity, and it's 
built in some form or other with the money that Athens got from imperial exploitation. That's how we can afford to do this vast temple. So if you're a Spartan or a Theban, you're not necessarily that thrilled by the Parthenon. No, I think you're not thrilled by the Parthenon. I think if you're one of the islands that Athens had taken over and you came to Athens every now and then to bring a tribute or whatever, I mean, you probably spat at it. (laughs) What for me is very interesting and I think makes the Parthenon a really exciting building is that Right from the very beginning, it was controversial. There hasn't been a moment in, you know, since it was built in two and a half thousand years when people haven't been arguing about it because a lot's at stake in it. It's, it is celebrating Athens, but it's celebrating it in a particular way, with a particular expenditure, in a way that people felt anxious about. And, you know, it's gone on being controversial, you know, proudly controversial forever. Can you tell us a bit about what was on it? Yes. The Parthenon isn't the biggest temple in the Greek world, but it is the most heavily and lavishly decorated with sculpture of any temple. Both its end gables, its pediments, show scenes looking down from either end, scenes from the life of Athena. Around the outer edge, the very outer edge, you've got a series of what's called metopes, they're kind of panels which go along the roof line almost. And what these show are conflicts between Greekness, Athenianness, civilization, and foreignness and barbarity. Today, the most famous bit of the Parthenon is a bit which was next to invisible and is never mentioned in um, any ancient description because it's the continuous frieze which goes round also at an upper level around the internal room of the Parthenon but facing out is the most extraordinary procession. People constantly, I think, rightly, are amazed at the way that within a kind of set of relief sculptures, which are only a few centimetres thick, you you can show horses lining up, you know, one behind the other, men sitting on them. They look, you know, it is a wonderful encapsulation of what you can do as a Greek sculptor at that time. Because they look so deep. They look so deep, you know, you get six or seven hoofs in a row, and it's all within a few centimetres. Brilliant. I mean, it is utterly brilliant. We've been referring to them as the Parthenon marbles, but of course, when I was a kid, they were called the Elgin marbles. Let's go back to how they got to be called the Elgin marbles. And I think also, maybe we should say what of the sculptures that you've been talking about that were on the Parthenon now exist here in this building that we're now sitting in. The Parthenon marbles are basically divided between the UK and the British Museum and now the Acropolis Museum in Athens. And the reason that they're divided, slightly more in the BM, is that... Lord Elgin, who was British ambassador to the Ottoman court at the end of the 18th, beginning of the 19th century, brought some of them to London. And for a long time, they bore his name. 
Now, let's talk a bit about Lord Elgin and why it was that he took an interest, because not every consul at a, at a foreign country in those days ended up bringing considerable treasures to Britain. That's true. I mean, I think the motives of Elgin are impossible now to reconstruct. On one side, you've got people who think that he was the nastiest, most rapacious bastard who wanted to decorate his country pile. And on the other hand, you've got people who think that he was a saviour who had seen the, the dangers that the marbles were in and decided to rescue them. And I suspect both of those extremes are wrong. <laughs> what you've got to remember is if you go back to the early 19th century is that there was a huge, huge desire to to have and to see the finest works of Greek art. Now, I think it's very, very hard for us to get any sort of sense of what it must have been like in Athens in the early 19th century when Elgin was there. And you know, quite a lot of other people were there. And you've got to remember that Athens was then in the Ottoman Empire. The Acropolis was not then the pristine, well-cared-for archaeological site that it now is. The Acropolis was the garrison base of the Ottoman occupying force. In other words, it was their principal fortress in Athens, was it? It was their principal fortress, and it was a combination of principal fortress and sort of shanty town. The pictures that we have of the Acropolis in the late 18th, early 19th century make it look a real mess. That there's Parthenon is in the middle. By that stage, it has been, first of all, blown up in an explosion in 1687, which destroyed a lot of it. It's also got a mosque nestling inside it. And there's this kind of military barracks come village all around it. And there is absolutely no doubt that the locals were using the Parthenon as a quarry. You know? And there were all kinds of jokes made about how it's better to grind down the, the marble which has got sculpture on than, than just the ordinary building blocks. And they were using the blocks of the Parthenon to make fortification walls. It was being cannibalised, actually. There's, there's absolutely no doubt about that. Mary, this, this seems to me to be an important thing uh, just to establish as a matter of fact or, uh, or reasonable supposition. If Elgin had not taken the marbles that he did and brought them to Britain, or at least taken them away from the Parthenon, is there a significant chance that a large amount of them would have been damaged or lost? We can only guess that. You know, this is rewriting history. If you say, carefully phrased, was there a significant chance that a large part of them would have, would have been damaged or lost? I think the answer to that is yes. One of the big problems is that Elgin does get some permission from the Ottoman authorities. He has a firman written in Ottoman Turkish, which allows him to do something. <laughs> um, the difficulty is the original document has been lost and we only have it in an Italian translation. And we don't know how accurate the Italian translation is, etc., etc. 
I know, but there doesn't seem much point in making an inaccurate I don't know. Italian translation, you, is there? You, you try looking at translations of documents the world over, right? And I can tell you, you wouldn't be so optimistic. Right. I'm not sure they're intending to make an inaccurate translation, but that's different. Yeah. It is clear that Elgin had permission to draw, to make casts, and to remove statues that were not on the building. Essentially, that had fallen off the building. Fallen off the building, we'd taken down from the building or whatever. Uh, What is much more contentious is that it's clear that he took some pieces from the building and partly had to dismantle bits of the building in order to do that. And it has long been debated whether whether in that he exceeded his remit or whether that was fine, right? Not only did he do that, he did what was quite common at the time when people were bringing very, very heavy bits of marble back to Northern Europe, is that he sawed off the back. I mean, it's the kind of thing which you know happens in some of the early days of archaeology, but it certainly doesn't happen a little bit later on and becomes anathema. No, no. no. And to say that Elgin was doing what was commonly done at the time – You know, in in some ways it's fine, but it's not a get-out-of-jail-free card. So how do the the Elgin marbles, the Path of Marbles, end up here in the British Museum? Well, the the issue is that Lord Elgin goes bust. (laughs) And that's the problem. And when people say Elgin profited from what he did to the path, then I'm afraid he lost all his money that way. Um, um, So when he gets back to England, he's got to sell them. So the British government says, okay. They buy them. And presumably they say, okay, we've we've bought them. Now, where on earth are we going to put them? Is that it? Yeah, and they they end up in the the Montague House, the nucleus of the BM. Now, this feels like an abstract question, but it's a question that a museum, a, a big museum, any museum has to ask itself, has to answer. What role do these marbles play in the British Museum's collection? How significant are they for a museum like the British Museum and why? I think they're hugely significant. These marbles mean different things wherever they are. And in the British Museum, I think you see it in two ways. And one is that you do see these marbles next to Persian art. You can go from Persia to 5th century Athens in a minute. And that, I think, reveals something about both Persian art and Greek art. I think also there is a way in which the the Parthenon sculptures in all kinds of ways have, have become over the last 200 years embedded and formative of all kinds of bits of European art and culture outside Greece. I think the important thing, and for me this is this is what makes the marbles perennially interesting, is of course that this debate about them has been going on for 200 years. Should they have been removed? Should they not have been removed? And I think the reason it hasn't been quite solved is because it's a very hard debate. <laughs> if it was simple... We'd have sorted this 200 years ago, probably. And it's because we don't quite know how to understand what you do with a work of art that engages so intensely 
with different bits of European culture. And it's very hard for us to say, where does this actually belong? I mean, and I, I think that anybody who thinks that there is a simple answer to that probably hasn't thought the question through sufficiently. There are a lot of people who do think it's a very there simple are, question. There are. I think there are. And look, 20 years ago, I wrote a book on the Parthenon and I said, I see all the difficulties here. I see good arguments on both sides of this question. I see bad arguments on both sides. And the more I've worked on it, the more I've sat on the fence. I ended up, you know, with a big line across my bum because I think that it represents one of the big problems of cultural heritage, which is who owns things, where do they belong, who has a right to see them. Now, if I had an answer to this, David, I would tell you. I'm, a, I'm a, Happily, I'm an academic and I don't have to have an answer. What I can do is I can show you the complexity of it. Coming up, is it always right to return objects in museums to where they originated? But first... I'm Mariella Frostrup, and every day on my show on Times Radio, we speak to some of the biggest names in the world of the arts, culture and politics. We bring you discussions about new social trends and all the latest news, views and interviews. We can only do this thanks to the subscribers of The Times and Sunday Times. Subscribe today by visiting thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. I'm David Sanderson. I'm the arts correspondent of The Times and have been for the last five, six years. And it's a, it's a great job. One is able to explore the cultural world to the nth degree. And so I, I have a responsibility to cover the country's great art museums. I cover theatre, literature, dance, music, film and a bit of TV and, of course, heritage. 
Uh, David, when you finish with your job, can I have it? <laughs> <laughs> Now, we talked to Mary Beard about the history of the Parthenon marbles. Can you tell us about what Greece says? I remember it not being much of an issue until the mid-70s, and a new government came to power, and its culture minister was the former actress Melina Mercuri with the husky voice, and at that point started a campaign for restitution, which I don't think has ever gone away. What does the Taj Mahal mean to India? What do the paintings in the Sistine Chapel mean to Italy? The Parthenon marbles are our pride. They are our identity. They are our cultural heritage. They are our soul. Certainly there has been increased impetus in its demands for Britain to return the pieces or for the British Museum to return them, which is in part largely prompted by the the creation of the Acropolis Museum. At the museum's opening in 2009, the then Greek Minister for Culture, Antonis Samaras, made an impassioned, and according to Mary Beard, factually problematic, plea for the marble's return. Incidentally, Samaras would later go on to become the Prime Minister from 2012 to 2015. The injustice that was made, we want it once and for all cleared and finished. We don't want to go back and start arguing about what happened 207 years ago with Elgin. We know these items were vandalised. They just took part of the front of a whole piece of art just to put it in a foreign museum. Uh, this is something that no one can accept. In much more recent times, the Greek government has built this new museum. And I talk to a lot of people who say, well, I didn't really care very much about this. And then I went to Athens and saw the new museum where they've left gaps where the marbles held by the British Museum could be put. And now they feel very differently about it. Has the Greek government been making much of what you might call a propaganda push on this? Absolutely. And it goes beyond the government. There are individual industrialists that are are putting a lot of money into try and persuade journalists of the merits of writing about this and more importantly of the merits of them being returned to Greece. So there is certainly private money going into it and there is a lot of political capital being used by the Greek government. The Greek promise is with us here. Yes, Kyriakos Mitsotakis. Thanks for having me. They're They're here because they were stolen. By Lord Elgin. That's Uh, debated, stolen or legal, but uh, in the end... uh, But at the end of the day, this is not a legal uh, argument. I will be making my case um, uh, to the British uh, Prime Minister. Indeed, I have received an invite to visit the Acropolis Museum, courtesy of the the Greek state, along with a, a handful of other British journalists. And how many other national museums from other countries have you been invited by the government to see during your time as culture correspondent? Very rarely, vanishingly rare for a political purpose. Now, a fairly short time ago, the decision was made to make the new chair of the British Museum, George Osborne, the former Chancellor of the Exchequer. And this is one of the first times such a high-profile ex-politician has been given that job. And so people have been examining what he said with more than usual care. 
<laughs> when it comes to um, the marbles. What do you understand him to have been saying about them? Yeah, I I get the feeling that he does not want to be the chairman of the museum who begins what some people say, perhaps pejoratively, would be the dismantling of the collection. I suspect that his favoured option would be a long-term loan of some sort. I think there's a deal to be done where we can tell both stories in Athens and in London. So that might mean you, you, you would move some of them to Greece at least for a while, and then they would come back to London. Is that the kind of that thing? kind of arrangement? I think I just cannot see this passing the Greeks. Um, if any of these marbles are lent to Athens, and I, I don't think they would be returning. Now, in the past, there has been recourse to a legal argument, hasn't there, about whether or not such a return is possible? Yes, for years, this is well, it's driven me slightly crazy. The the British Museum has, up until very recently, always said, no, 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 it's the responsibility of the government. At the same time, the government says it's entirely the responsibility of the trustees. Do you think it's a political fact that the British Museum couldn't do such a thing realistically without the agreement of the British government and the British Parliament? Yes, I think that is a fact, yeah. David, let's turn to the implications of the debate about the marbles for what you might call the great restitution debate. And I think maybe perhaps we should define our terms here. What does restitution mean? And when you've told us that, tell us about how the debate has hotted up in recent years. Yes, so restitution, to my mind, effectively means cultural restitution, and it's repairing, in very general terms, repairing harms done during the colonial era by returning items that were taken in questionable circumstances and returning them to the country's places of origin. This debate has heated up in the last few years and I suspect has probably been turbocharged by the Black Lives Matter movement in 2020, which then kind of segued into... Britain's history of slave trading, indeed slave ownership, and the long-lasting benefits the country accrued from that. And then, I suppose, into a wider debate about a reckoning with colonial history. Now, it always seems to me that some cases are much clearer than others. Yeah. Uh, so perhaps we should talk about the Benin bronzes, which many regard as the clearest examples. Tell us a bit about those. Yeah, it's not hard to see why many feel this is a, an egregious example of colonial theft. So in 1897, a British expeditionary force ransacked the capital of the Benin Empire, as it was, which is in current, present-day Nigeria, and stole whatever they felt was valuable. These stunning objects which are cast from bronze and brass and there were plaques, there were various uh, regalia, there were animal and human figurines etc. Taking them was compared by a Nigerian politician to yanking off the pages of our history. So thousands of these bronzes were taken. Now over the last period what's been happening in terms of people's attitude towards return and restitution? 
the bronzes are being returned wholesale. Uh, there's a number of British institutions that have either agreed to return or actually have returned. And a number of uh, international institutions, the Smithsonian in America and German institutions, have also agreed to return the bronzes. So Britain has been a, an invader for several hundred years, a, a millennia. And this has given it um, plenty of opportunities to seize treasures in many parts of the world. So there are no shortage of countries that believe that objects held by British museums should be returned to them. And the marbles may well be the poster boy of the restitution debate, but there are many other poster boys and girls behind it. Do you worry at all for the future of institutions like the British Museum under present circumstances? Personally, no, but I do know that politicians are concerned about this. If I can, one of my interviews with a, a previous culture secretary, Jeremy Wright, he made the point that if you follow the logic of restitution to its logical conclusion, then there would be no single place where you would be able to see multiple things from different civilizations. But an interesting point was made by Ed Vesey in a, a recent speech. The V&A, which holds more than 2.7 million items in its collections, has received a total of nine restitution cases since 1999. So it's difficult to see how museums would be completely denuded of artefacts with a judicious return of objects, which will garner UK PLC a lot of credit in the, the world. Um, and there's no doubt that post-Brexit, Britain could do with as much credit in the world as it can get. So I do believe that the museums hold so many objects that they're still going to be able to show the story of the world in a, a comprehensive, illustrative and indeed exciting way. So would you return the Rosetta Stone? <laughs> Can I take the fifth in that? I, am, I have to objectively <laughs> report to these events, and it'd be unfair for me to put too much personal opinion into it. <laughs> yeah, that's why I started with the most difficult. <laughs> <laughs> For now, the Parthenon sculptures will remain in the British Museum, who say they will loan the sculptures to those who wish to display them to the public around the world, providing they will look after them and return them. Meanwhile, on his visit to the UK last week, the current Greek Prime Minister, Kyriakos Mitsotakis, struck a hopeful tone. We've seen progress. I don't want to speak publicly about the discussions that we have had, but I think there is a better sense of understanding that maybe a, a win-win solution can be found. I do sense the momentum. I know that uh, you know, the British public opinion, I think, is supportive of the idea. A Greek newspaper has reported that the chairman of the British Museum has been holding talks with the Greek Prime Minister. An agreement to return the sculptures to Greece is at an advanced stage, according to the Tanea newspaper. A British Museum spokesperson said... The British Museum has publicly called for a new Parthenon partnership with Greece and will talk to anyone, including the Greek government, about how to take that forward. We operate within the law and we're not going to dismantle our great collection as it tells a unique story of our common humanity. But we are seeking new, positive, long-term partnerships with countries and communities around the world. And that, of course, includes Greece. 
This week, a renewed call was made for the return of the Rosetta Stone from the British Museum to Egypt. So whatever happens to the marbles, restitution will continue to be on the agenda for the boards of Britain's great institutions, who are already involved in a wider debate over the role of the museum in the modern world. Questions that have occupied Mary Beard, herself a trustee of the British Museum. I'm happy to say, and this is not just company PR, I think that the museum is actively asking precisely those questions. You know, I don't think you expected to have an answer to this. I mean, the museum is a very, the museum in general, I don't mean the British Museum, it is a peculiarly kind of enlightenment institution. And what do we think it does now? Do we think objects should all be where they were made. And I don't think we do think that, actually. But if we don't think that, then on what terms and by what criteria do we decide and how do we relate that to issues of power, whether power of money or the cultural imperial power? You know, it's time for us to to start to interrogate that a bit more. Museums have always been sites of interrogation, whether it's who should come in, who shouldn't, what should be on display. If museums were unexamined and not argued about, you know, we might as well give up because they are such central institutions. But we need to say, and I think the British Museum, it's not the only museum that's doing this by any means, how do you share this stuff? What is it to be a global museum? What does ownership of cultural property come down to? Now, I don't think you're going to solve that quickly, but I think that my guess is that in a hundred years we probably will have. You know, you said you're a trustee of the British Museum, Embed. I'm happy to say that I can put my hand on my heart and say that's exactly what we're thinking about. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times, with me, David Aronovich, and my guests, classicist Dame Mary Beard and arts correspondent for The Times, David Sanderson. Thanks also to the British Museum. You can find all of David's work at thetimes.co.uk or in print. We'll also be releasing a bonus episode with more from Mary's interview in the coming weeks, so keep an eye out for it in your podcast feed. The producer was Sam Chantarasak, the executive producer is Kate Ford, and sound design was by Tom Birchall. See you tomorrow. <laughs>